It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. We're into the slower political season, supposedly, so we're doing something a little different. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm sitting down with some interesting political figures who I think will be shaping the political weather for the rest of 2018. Some of them you might be familiar with, some of them possibly not. Our guest this week is Nick Bowes, the Conservative MP for Grantham and Stamford in Lincolnshire. He began his political career on Westminster City Council before founding the influential modernising think tank Policy Exchange. He entered the House of Commons in 2010 and worked his way up the political ladder to become housing and later skills minister. After Theresa May became Prime Minister in the summer of 2016, he returned to the backbenches and once again has become an influential voice on the modernising wing of the Conservative Party. So Nick, thank you very much for coming coming to the FT for this chat. As a backbencher, what does the summer break mean for you that obviously Parliament's in recess, but there's still a bit of news going around, things to have an opinion on? Yes, I think it has changed because I think people are much more in touch now, almost wherever they are. They're in touch in terms of receiving information. I actually delete Twitter from my phone and iPad during recess because I think it's a great source of sanity to have a bit of a Twitter break. Most people Um, do that on their holiday, so that's a very wise idea. That's what I do during recess. But nevertheless, I can't avoid picking up some of the news. And certainly, there's quite a lot of WhatsApp activity this summer in particular, I think, because obviously... We're in a state of great flux and there's great uncertainty about what's going to happen in the autumn. In a sense, the whole Brexit deal needs to reach some kind of a conclusion by Christmas. So this autumn is going to be the absolute peak season. And frankly, anything could happen. So... So far, it certainly doesn't feel as though everybody's completely switched off. Last summer, we had the fallout of the general election and the summer before that was the EU referendum. So those days of a summer silly season seem to have gone. You mentioned WhatsApp groups. It's a fascinating development over the past year or so in Westminster that WhatsApp groups have very much become the de facto way of communicating between certain gangs, certain factions. I've written a column about how it actually creates a special kind of attitude with people trying to attack each other, impress each other or what have you. So you must be on the All Conservative MPs WhatsApp group as well. I'm not. No, I'm not on the All Conservative MPs. I think probably because when they created it, I was ill. And then I've never really wanted to be part of it because I actually think there's a danger. I think you don't want to use this as a way to broadcast to a very large number of colleagues. That's exactly what people use it for. Which is what people use it to. What I use it for is to have conversations with a very small number of people who I trust and share a common interest on a particular issue. So I think a WhatsApp group with more than about five people in it is not a safe place to have an open conversation. And the whole point of it is to have an open conversation. Well, we've seen so many leaks. There was a huge leak from the European research group of the Brexit backing MPs 
tens of their messages made their way onto BuzzFeed and what have you. And it also broadcasts the gang-like mentality, which I think ordinary punters often don't like about mm. Westminster. You know, they elect you as the MP for Grantham. They want you to do things for Grantham, whereas politicking and plotting and all the rest of it is part of what you do. But when it's exposed in that way, I think it doesn't do a good service to Westminster generally. I think that's probably right. The people who in our constituencies need to understand that the way that Westminster works is that one has to build momentum and one has to build a coalition of support for any measure. And ultimately, obviously, you have to build a parliamentary majority for that measure. But first, in the sense to persuade your own party, you need to recruit other people who may have different motives for being interested and being involved, who may want your support on something else. That's how politics works. And in a sense, we are doing our constituents' business. That's the way the business gets done in this place. I think that new technology helps, but one's got to be very careful about not letting it take over or get out of control. And I think perhaps you're referring to some cases where it has. Now, we're recording this not long after the whole Boris Johnson fiasco on the Burka thing. And I think what that shows is that even though MPs have left Westminster, I think Mr Johnson's actually on holiday when this whole row broke out. But it's amazing how this has gone into the tribes of leadership potentials already, that when you look at all the people who've been criticising Mr Johnson, they were, broadly speaking, the most ardent Remain supporters, mm. people like Dominic Grieve and Anna Subri, whereas those defending him have been the most ardent Brexit supporters, people like Nadine Dorries and Connor Burns. So even though Mrs May seems to be relatively safe for the duration, those arguments are still going on. How do you personally feel about the whole Burke around? Do you think it is just mask for sort of leadership manoeuvrings? I certainly don't know what the motives are of people commenting on it. My view is that there's a discussion to be had about whether the burqa has a legitimate place in British society. But what isn't on is to be insulting or dismissive of it. Frankly, you could make the argument that we should not allow the burqa in the UK, but to do so in a very reasonable and respectful way because it is a custom that some people have and we should always be respectful of other people's customs. So I do think that Boris got the balance wrong but you know ultimately frankly he's a columnist so presumably he's in the business of stirring up controversy because that's what columnists to some extent have to do. He doesn't occupy high office. This is not the view of the Conservative Party, it's not the view of the Conservative government and I think he got it wrong but I don't think it's the end of the world. I think that we need to just move on and talk about more important things. I think you've hit upon something very interesting there. As someone from the journalism world speaking, there are many tricks you can use in columns to grab people's attention and catching metaphor is a way of doing it and that's what Boris has done I think consistently throughout the decades that he's written columns but he is also a Conservative MP and lest we forget just weeks ago he was also Secretary of State for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office so he is a bit more than just a columnist. Obviously that's fair I think perhaps he's reminded us of why he wasn't the most natural Foreign Secretary that we've ever had. What I found myself wondering is how Jacob Rees-Mogg another outspoken and colourful Conservative MP would have tackled the same issue. And I suspect he might well have had some quite strong views on it, maybe even views that others would consider to be illiberal views. But I'm absolutely certain that he would have been utterly respectful and courteous in the language he used to describe the burqa and those people who wear it. And that was my problem with what Boris wrote. But I just thought it was rude. 
and obnoxious and not at all rude or obnoxious to have a discussion about the burqa. I think that Jacob, who I disagree with about almost everything, sets a very high standard, which I think we should all follow and Boris should follow, of courtesy and respect and civility when expressing some quite strong and, in my view, some quite wrong views. So this comes to a point of something you've spent a lot of your political career focused on, which is modernising the Conservative Party. And you were one of the key voices in that first wave of modernisation around the time of David Cameron and George Osborne's leadership. But there has been this sense over the past two years, particularly since the Brexit vote, that the nasty party idea has returned because the Conservative Party is becoming the party of Brexit in terms of its voting base, in terms of what it represents, whether it likes it or not. It is now the party of Brexit. And with that, you've got some people with some very acerbic views and the outreach that was done during the first wave of modernisation to ethnic minorities. A lot of that has been reversed since the Brexit vote and comments like Boris's they're not going to do you any favours come the next general election. I think that's right, and it makes me very sad. I don't think it's irreversible, but I think we're in the last chance saloon, probably. For appealing you know, to ethnic minorities, do you mean? Not just that. In a sense, appealing to young people, appealing to people who feel themselves part of a, a modern, cosmopolitan, diverse world. And, of course, among them, people from ethnic minorities, but not only that. What I think symbolises it is, think back what now feels like an age ago, but was actually only six years ago, to the Olympics. The Olympics was probably the single thing that this country has done of which we are all proudest of in the last 20 years. And Boris was the most wonderful representative of that spirit. He was a cheerleader for a modern, diverse, easy-come, easy-go, all-embracing Britain. And I think that it's sad that he has moved away from that because I think it's when he was a most successful but also truest to himself. Well, that's the question, uh, and, what is the real And I think the Boris? Conservative Party also has moved a bit away from that and I think that that's a mistake, a political mistake of, of the greatest measure and we must not allow that to continue. When you look back to that 2012 moment which was seen as very symbolic of a Britain that appeared to be comfortable in its new identity, its post-empire identity, a multicultural society... But then obviously it's been followed by the very divisive referendum in Scotland, the very divisive EU referendum as well. And that sense that we were building this new cohesive society, that was on show to the world in 2012. But a lot of the events since then have shown that either that was a fluke or we weren't quite there yet. Hmm. I think that's probably a fair comment. I actually don't think that society is as fundamentally divided as perhaps it appears. But these particular political arguments, and you pick the right two, the Scottish independence campaign and then the Brexit argument, have certainly fanned the flames of division. And I think that if we allow it to get out of control, people will end up thinking that they disagree about lots of other things, where in fact, when you research the social attitude surveys and the like, you find an extraordinary unanimity, you know, it's extraordinary unanimity about same-sex marriage over which there was division in the past. You find extraordinary unanimity on the idea of mixed-race relationships and mixed-race marriages being a very positive thing. Now, there are lots of countries in Europe, in the Americas and elsewhere that do not have those very positive and relatively harmonious social attitudes. And I think they're still here, and I think that they were on display in the Olympics, and I think 
think what we need to do is get past these current very political arguments, very sort of constitutional arguments. They're not really about ordinary life and get back to that united view of what Britain is. Well, if you look at the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, that was an example of something that may have been seen as divisive in other countries, but wasn't at all here. And there was a Mm. complete national sense of celebration. But it does feel quite hard to chime that sometimes with when you look at this big national event, again, where the eyes of the world were on Britain, something that was very progressive and forward-looking with some of the kind of political debates that we have in Westminster. I think that's right. And I think that if we have a overwhelming responsibility as MPs in the next six months and the next couple of years thereafter, but particularly in the next six months, is to try and find a way to embrace a solution to the Brexit problem that nobody's delighted about, but that everybody can live with, so that we can then move on and start talking about other things that matter. What we cannot allow is for one side to win and grind the faces of the other side in the dust. And I'm afraid on both sides, there's a lot of loose talk which suggests that they're nothing like more than to grind the faces of their opponents into the dust. And I'm afraid I put colleagues of mine in both camps squarely in my sights when I say that. There is a lot of impetuous, intolerant, intemperate talk. And it's not helping the country at all. It's not actually helping achieve a good deal either. And it's not going to be good for Britain. You know, if one side wins, they may briefly rejoice. But I promise you they will come to repent the way that they went about it. I just hope that the leaders of the respective camps, and I'm not really in either camp, and I'm certainly not a leader in either camp, but they have a grave responsibility to just tone it down, try and see the good in the other side, emphasise areas of agreement rather than areas of disagreement, and on no account think that total victory is a place that you want to get to. We'll come back to Brexit in a moment. I just want to chat briefly about yourself. So I think you first entered the national political sense during the mid-noughties, and this was the point when David Cameron became leader. And I believe you were described as a key part of what was the Notting Hill set, which was a group of modernising Conservative MPs who were trying to revamp both the party's look and the party's policy. And in a sense, it was successful because you came out the biggest party in the 2010 election, but you didn't win the 2010 Mm. election. And I'm sure there were things that you would do differently now. What do you think are the key lessons from that period 2005 to 2010 for now? So I think that there are lots of lessons, but equally times are always very specific. So what was very important was in everything that we said and did to look and sound as though we were comfortable with modern Britain and that we didn't radically want to turn any clocks back and that we weren't privately or publicly entertaining ideas that some previous age, whether the 1950s or the 1870s was a golden age which only if we could get back to things would be better and I think the Tory party had failed on that and that then translated into quite a number of political and policy positions so previously we'd had policies which entertained the idea of effectively helping people perhaps on higher incomes to escape from universal public services like the NHS. And that was, in my view, a bonkers policy, but also politically absolutely tone deaf, because what a 
government has to be is it has to be governing for everyone and for the services on which everyone relies. And the shift from helping people opt out of universal public services to improving universal public services for everyone on the NHS, on education, was absolutely crucial. And what we must make sure that we do is that on the challenges we face today, and some of them are the same, like the NHS, but some of them are perhaps new and different, that we don't slip back into that elitist, pull up the ladder behind us. If we make sure that the better off doing okay, then that's what Conservatives should worry about. If we ever get back into that, we will be rightly consigned back to opposition for many years to come. Do you think, looking back, David Cameron's time as Prime Minister was a success or not? Because he enacted a lot of domestic reform, but in all honesty, he's only ever going to be remembered for one thing, which was the EU referendum for calling it and for losing it. When you look back at that period, do you think he was right to call it? Because there's two views on this. There's the view of people like Craig Oliver, who was David Cameron's director of communications, that this boil had to be lanced, that UKIP was growing, Eurosceptic sentiment was growing, concerns of a migration were going, so you had to do that. The other view was that it was a total lack of political leadership and that if Mr Cameron had spoken better about migration, about the benefits the EU had brought, that he felt quite deeply that that could have been dealt with and what was lacking there was leadership. You know, I think you're right, firstly, to say that he achieved a lot in his time in office and there are certain reforms, whether to the education system or certain liberal constitutional changes like the introduction of same-sex marriage, which will never be taken away from him and will transform many hundreds of thousands of people's lives for the better. So that's important in the balance. But of course, history is no more objective than anything else. And you're right that the history books will focus on the referendum that he called and lost because that, in a sense, has defined how his leadership will be remembered. I agree with Craig that I think that a referendum on our membership of the EU was inevitable and inescapable at some point. But I disagree with Craig in that I think that David Cameron called it at the wrong time. He rushed into it. He was cocky. He'd won a referendum in Scotland that people thought we might lose. He then won an election. High on hubris. A cocky is the word I would use, and he's paid heavily for it. I think if he'd deferred the referendum, he might well have won it. I don't think that you can put at his door a failure to make the case for the EU and for immigration over many years, because the reality is his predecessors haven't either. Tony Blair, who's famously you know, in love with Europe, did absolutely nothing to sell it to the British public and what it delivered for us. Gordon Brown was no better. So I'm afraid it's been a long-running failure of British leaders, and that certainly can't all be laid at David Cameron's door. But he did call a referendum at the wrong time, and he lost it unnecessarily. Looking back on your time as a minister, do you miss it at all? Would you like to be back in office someday? Yes, but I don't miss it now because what I've realised, and this is probably the reason why I'll never be in office again, is that I only think it's worth the hassle and there's a lot of hassle. So, what do you mean by hassle? Well, it's just there's a punishing amount of boring, pointless meetings papers, you know, most of it is drudgery, and frankly, pretty futile drudgery. But you do sometimes get the chance to make a really quite significant change to see an idea through into implementation. 
that you believe and then can watch to see whether it makes a difference or not. And I was lucky enough in both of the jobs I had to be given the backing to do a couple of things, nothing that people are going to write about in the history books, but that I know happened because I thought of them, devised them and pushed them through. But to get that, you needed to have the backing of the political leadership and the government leadership. And I'm afraid the truth is at the moment, we lost our majority in the election last year and the government is not able to do anything. It's not doing anything. It isn't doing anything because it can't do anything. And I have some sympathy. The chief whip is very much of the view that unless he can be absolutely certain that a vote can be won with Conservative votes and DUP votes, then we shouldn't hold a vote. And that, broadly speaking, means that on anything other than a few essentials like budgets and Brexit legislation, he doesn't want to know. But in that circumstance, I have to say, I think it would be utterly dispiriting to be a minister because you haven't got political leadership that is strong enough to be able to give you any space and you haven't got parliamentary maths to be able to deliver any legislative change. So you are literally just shuffling papers, attending meetings. Yes, of course, it's keeping the ship on the road. I think that's a mixed metaphor, but you get my drift. And there's some merit in that, but it's not the kind of ministerial career that tempts me anymore. Now, when you were housing minister, I think one of the things you, again, most well known for was your anonymous version on Twitter, which was at General Bowles. Uh, And this was when you, quote unquote, declared war on the countryside, which is a topic, again, that people are talking about, about the need to build more houses, build more across possibly parts of our green and pleasant land. Liz Trust talked about that in one of these earlier podcasts. Did you ever find out who ran that Twitter account? No, it was a very strange story. It was very annoying for me, really, because who Whoever was doing it became much more popular and much funnier than me. And of course, with the freedom of being a parody account and therefore not constrained by government office and the rest. But I never found out who it was. It was quite uncanny because sometimes he, if it's a he, would tweet something that I'd just thought. So I did sometimes wonder... Are you sure it wasn't yourself? Well, I know. I did sometimes wonder whether I didn't have a schizophrenic disorder, which meant that actually I was General Bowles and I just blanking out when I tweeted in his name. But he's disappeared. He's become bored of me and I think probably bored of politics altogether. Or maybe he's created a parody of somebody else who's more fun. Well, there was you and Steve Hilton who both Mm. had great parodies, but from possibly a simpler age. Let's just look to the future on two things now. So the first thing is... Renewal of the Conservative Party again. So why you've been on the back benches, you've been focusing on what you describe as your square deal. And this is a way of looking at the key policy areas that need to be revamped. Now, this is very much what you did in policy exchange at the time of the launch of the Cameroon Project. How does this differ now? And give us an outline of what you're arguing for. So in very simple terms, I guess the argument is that the free market system, the capitalist system, has failed to deliver for large numbers of our fellow citizens, both in terms of people perhaps of a certain age, so people under the age of 40, and also people living in particular parts of the country, people with particular educational levels. And while overall, and it's a striking achievement, this and one that's important to 
remember, overall, actually, inequality hasn't increased in the UK since the 2010 election, since we came into office. In fact, it's managed to maintain pretty steady. Nevertheless, clearly, that's looking at income equality in terms of assets, in terms of sort of capital. Property, property. is a great example. You know, the, there's been a huge shift. There are generations which have done very well, largely out of obviously the housing market, and then future new generations who really, though they're working very hard and earning good money and doing everything that society asks of them, have no particular prospect of being able to get a place of their own because prices are so high and because they require such a large deposit. So the drift, I guess, of the argument in Square Deal is that we need to reform capitalism to save capitalism. Otherwise, a bunch of populists on the left, in our case, Jeremy Corbyn, will come along and sweep it away effectively. And therefore, the responsibility of the Conservative Party is to actually make those changes and make those reforms to make it offer a square deal for everyone so that everyone can support it. But if your Conservative Party's been in power for eight years, you have to shoulder some of the blame for creating this system and this environment. You mm. can't blame Labour. They've not been in power for quite a long time now. So where did you go wrong to get you to this position? I accept certainly that after eight years, one can't really blame the predecessors for much. I think that it's fair to say that we have focused on the deficit, which was an absolutely overwhelming and urgent priority. And it was quite right to focus on it. The great achievement of David Cameron and George Osborne is to have effectively brought that deficit down to nothing. You know, we don't really have a current deficit anymore without completely butchering the public services. Well, and, some people um, would disagree with that. Well, no, but they'd be wrong because there's literally precisely no statistical evidence for butchering. Of course, there's been restraint and there's been austerity and there have been some job losses, but we still have a universal healthcare system that is up there with the best in the world. We still have a universal education system. We still have good defence and decent roads and we're a civilised society still. Having brought down spending as a share of GDP from 45% in just before we came into office to now, you know, around 38, 39. So that was an overwhelming task. And what it meant is that we didn't tackle other tasks. And where I'd be most critical of myself and my colleagues and the Conservative Party in general is that we have completely failed to get to grips with the housing crisis as assertively as we should have done. And we spent much too long tiptoeing around the NIMBY point of view. And I think it's fantastic that Liz Truss is now being very forthright on this issue. But she will know, because it's frustrated her for as long as it's frustrated me, that many Conservatives have been more concerned to defend the interests of those who already have a property and not focused enough on the interests of those who don't yet have a property and who have every legitimate ambition to want one. We're leaving it a bit late, frankly, to be doing much more now. We are doing much more now, and but I'm not sure if we're doing quite enough, and we are leaving it very, very late. And if we lose the next election whenever it comes, the two biggest reasons for it, in my view, will be one that we will have basically screwed up Brexit. And the second will be that we failed on housing. I think those will be the two hammer blows that will push us into opposition if that's what happens to us. 
And then finally, to end where we began with the lovely Brexit question again, you've essentially landed quite in the middle of this. You were a Remain supporter during the 2016 referendum, like many of of people from the Cameroon gang. But since then, you've been relatively pragmatic. You voted to trigger Article 50. You've supported broadly the Prime Minister's position in all Mm -hmm. the things as her position has developed from the hard red lines, the Lancaster House, the softer red lines of the Chequers. Where do you think Brexit's going to end up and how do you feel, you know, again, we're recording this, when there's a lot of chatter about a no-deal Brexit, potentially leaving the EU without a deal. How do you feel about that and where do you think it's all going to end up? Well, the first thing I think is a very important thing for people to understand is there's not going to be a no-deal Brexit. I don't care how many of my colleagues dream of this in the midnight hour. There are not the parliamentary numbers to support a no-deal Brexit. And I will vote as a Conservative MP, in whatever way is necessary, on whatever motion will achieve the result of stopping a no-deal Brexit. Is there a lot of Um, support for that, do you think, amongst your colleagues? I think there's a lot of support for it amongst my colleagues. You know, I am bound and happy to be bound by manifesto commitments to secure a Brexit deal which preserves the economy and which gives us greater control over the key measures, the key things that were the motives for the referendum campaign, greater control over our borders, over our laws and over our money. Nowhere did I say and did the manifesto say that I was bound to support Brexit at any cost, at any price, without any deals to replace it. And I will not support a no-deal Brexit. And I can think of 40 Conservative MPs, at least, who will not support a no-deal Brexit. So no-deal Brexit isn't going to happen. What is going to happen is either a good deal or a bad deal. And what I'm focused on... What defines those, though? Well, there are many measures, of course. There's, you know, the economic measure, which is does it support the interests of British business of all kinds, of all sizes, services and manufacturing. There's the measure of does it deliver on the legitimate goals of those who voted to leave? I mean, they won. And I've considered it right from that morning. I mean, I sent a tweet 7.30 in the morning, the day after the referendum, saying we must now get on to deliver a Brexit that reflects this result. So right from the start, it's always been clear to me that we must honour it. But the way to honour it is to compromise with our European partners and to achieve a compromise within the country between those people who care most about business success and others who care most about control of our borders. And I think that the Prime Minister is trying her best. I'm not sure that the Chequers Agreement is going to do it. And it may be that we'll need to look for another route to doing it. But the one this route... Is maybe parking in the EEA, for example, which some of your colleagues have talked there about. There certainly has been some interesting talk about that as an opportunity. And, Does that and, interest you? And, and then seeking a, a longer-term free trade agreement that would be more similar to the Canada position. Well, I'm interested in anything that can provide a reasonable Brexit deal that everybody can live with and that everybody can see some merit in. What I will on no account uh, allow myself as a voting member of the House of Commons to be party to is a no-deal Brexit. 
And then very finally, last quick question. Do you think the Conservative Party is going to survive all this for this series? I've also spoken to Jacob Rees-Mogg, who you mentioned earlier, who has diametrically opposed views to you on this. He considers a no-deal slash WTO terms Brexit, if not preferable, but totally acceptable. You know, that's such a wide view of opinion within the same party. Are you still going to exist as a political grouping by the end of this year? It's obviously putting strain on us. To be fair to Jacob, who is a good friend of mine, right from the word go when we were both first elected, we sat next to each other in the House of Commons. We just chose the same sort of vantage point in the chamber. And I have learned more from Jacob about British history, about Parliament, about the Constitution. I find him an you know, absolute mine of information. And he's unfailingly kind and solicitous. When I was but- ill last year, he said this is so much more important than anything else. We disagree on this, but we've always disagreed on this. It's nothing new that Jacob believes in this approach. He's always believed in it. Bill Cash has always believed in it. We've managed to get through eight years of government with these quite different beliefs, with Ken Clark and Bill Cash in the same party. Ken Clark was in the cabinet. Bill Cash voted for all of the measures that the government was putting forward. So I think we can get back to it. What we cannot allow, and I get back to this point, we cannot allow one side to think that it's okay to grind the faces of the other side into the dust. I don't believe Jacob thinks that that would be reasonable or fair. It's not in his nature. And I hope we can persuade him that a compromise is what we should all be looking for. And that's it for this special episode of FT Politics. Nick, thank you very much for taking the time to come and chat with us. We'll be back next week for another instalment with another special guest. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.